The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. Conversation with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Breaking news with Eileen Bell and sports with Morley Scott. This is the Afternoon News on 630 Chad, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. One of the great revelations of the space age has been the perspective it has given humanity on ourselves. When we see the Earth from space, we see ourselves as a whole. We see the unity, and not the divisions. It is such a simple image. With a compelling message, one planet, one human race. We are here together, and we need to live together with tolerance and respect. We must become global citizens. Great words from Stephen Hawking. As we've been telling you all day, internationally renowned scientist Stephen Hawking has died at the age of 76. Welcome to the 6.30 Ched Afternoon News with Jalen Nye and Andrew Gross. There you go. He passed away early this morning at his home in Cambridge, England. Hawking was diagnosed with ALS at the age of 21, was given only a couple of years to live, but stunned doctors by living with the disease for more than 50 years. Now, he was best known for his groundbreaking work with black holes and relativity and was the author of several popular science books. To talk about his legacy, we're joined by David Wesley Hobel, the associate professor in, or an associate professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Calgary. Welcome to the show, David. Oh, hello. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm, I'm curious to know uh, what went through your mind uh, last night, this morning, when you had heard that uh, Stephen Hawking had passed away. Well, it's a rather sad day to uh, realize that uh, one person that you really respected and admired uh, has passed away. Um, it wasn't unexpected. I yeah. guess it's been expected for 50 years, which is absolutely amazing, as you had said, that uh, he was told when he was in his 20s that he only had a few years to live and was able to survive this long. Um, it is just an amazing story. But um, given all of uh, what he has done, um, both in the subject that I study, general relativity, cosmology, quantum information, and so on, um, and in his interest in what the potentials, uh, potential is for huma humankind, um, really brings us to a point where, yeah, there is a certain amount of sadness because it means that his ideas are not going to be floating around any longer. <laughs> you know, many would know uh, Hawkins from the movie uh, with the uh, theory of everything, and I feel like I'm about to ask you, could you explain the world to me? <laughs> <laughs> but we really are, David. But <laughs> well, we kind of are. What, what was the theory of everything? Uh, <laughs> it's just what it says. It's a theory that explains everything. Um, Maybe not, uh, you know, what we're going to eat for dinner tonight, but uh, um, there are, you know, in physics, there are four fundamental forces, and three of them have been brought together uh, as a theory that uh, involves quantum mechanics and quantum field theory. The one that is left out is uh, Einstein's uh, theory of gravity, which is really a theory of uh, space-time geometry. And this is one subject that Stephen Hawking worked on quite a bit, was to try to knit uh, quantum mechanics together with Einstein's theory of relativity, 
which is still um, yet to be done. It still causes uh, people, uh, at least some of us, uh, some <laughs> sleepless nights. Huh. And uh, it would basically explain every possible interaction between all of the particles, all of the fields, the geometry of space and time under one complete theory. Wow. Man, I just sit here and go, what the hell have I been doing yeah. with my time? Like, really? <laughs> still, still trying to figure out my VCR. <laughs> exactly. So, what, haven't, You haven't had sleepless nights. <laughs> <laughs> Completely different reasons, <laughs> David. <laughs> David, what, what would that discovery mean uh, when, if it happens? What would that mean for this, for this world, for the universe? Well, it would mean that we understand where the universe may have come from. Uh, right now, uh, one of the things that Stephen Hawking did together with Roger Penrose when he was uh, a young professor at Cambridge was to uh, realize that the universe, uh, as we see it today, started out from a Big Bang, which uh, is still not well described. It's uh, called a space-time singularity. And uh, what that means is that we don't have any mathematical description or physical description of what that means. If we were to link quantum mechanics and gravity, we might have an inkling of what the early universe really looked like, what it, where we came from, what caused it to happen. Um, and uh, the same thing is true with black holes. Inside a black hole is another space-time singularity. Again, it loses its mathematical and physical description, but hopefully quantum mechanics, together with general relativity, would provide us with a description of what is going on um, in those objects. Hmm. And since we're measuring now gravitational waves from black holes for the first time, and hopefully gravitational waves from the early universe and uh, its effects, uh, this will allow us to understand what gravity is at the most extreme <laughs> limits of its uh, strength. Hey, David, you mentioned uh, you know where the universe came from. Hawkins uh, was quite clear that he was an atheist, mm -hmm. uh, but he talked about one day knowing the mind of God. Exactly. Right. So how do you how do you rectify those two? Well, that was something he had to rectify. <laughs> I think with himself. I think um, he believed. Well, he did not believe that God created the universe. Let's put it that way. And. He wrote many articles and books on that, uh, both for the uh, popular press and had mentioned this in, in you know, scientific uh, journals and so on. But I think um, he did feel that maybe there was something else beyond just the physics um, that uh, is described by these four fundamental forces. Hmm. And so uh, he probably was reluctant to describe that as God, but... Um, uh, I think he felt uh, that there was something beyond what could be described purely by physics, and clearly your quote about uh, humanity and its unique place in, in the universe uh, kind of also references that idea. David, I'm curious to know in the, in the work that you do and the thousands of others out there who do that work that you do, how is that balanced? How is, how is religion and, and science balanced in the work that uh, you, you do and, and set your mind out to every day? Um, well, when we're actually doing the science, we're not thinking about religion, <laughs> I guess you could yeah, say that. Yeah, I guess that. so. Because um, basically what uh, we do is theoretical physicists anyway is to take uh, an assumption or some idea that we have, put
put it into a mathematical formulation and then use the mathematics, whether it be algebra, geometry, or calculus, to arrive at a conclusion that uh, is based upon the mathematical formulation of the question that you ask. And uh, from that point of view, there's um, nothing that religion would actually um, work its way into. In fact, you hope that you don't... uh, Produce, you know, have other ideas that work its way into, <laughs> uh, you know, leading you astray uh, in the mathematical uh, computations and manipulations that you have to do to arrive at your conclusions. Well, you know, since you bring that up, over the years, did any of Hawking's theories change? Did his focus change or early theories change? Um, let's, let's, Stephen Hawking actually went through a kind of uh, phase transition where he went from being very mathematically rigorous to being more, um, uh, I guess, um, what I want to say is, uh, well, I guess he, he thought about different ideas without the, the mathematical rigor. Um, he wanted to bring in certain ideas that n- wouldn't necessarily um, be followed up by the mathematics. So he was providing a lot of, you know, assumptions and ideas without going through the follow-up. And in some cases, other people who did follow up on them, including some of his own students, uh, proved him that his ideas were actually incorrect. Mm. So, and he's willing to accept that. I mean, that's part of what science is about, is to come up with um, some assumptions, uh, then do the mathematical work on that as, you know, his his, uh, physics physical uh, situation deteriorated, it became more and more difficult for him to write out the equations or to even communicate the equations uh, that were in his head. So I think um, he was becoming more and more speculative uh, in his later years than he was rigorous. And I think I vaguely remember he did say something to Kip Thorne, who just won the Nobel Prize this past year, that he would rather be right than rigorous. In other words, he would rather have his ideas um, be proven correct, even though he might not do it himself, but uh, at least he had the right inkling, uh, and um, that was generated from whatever was happening within his head, I guess. So, yeah, he did go and go through this period where he had more speculations than actual results, and he had many betty bets with different people. For example, he had a bet with Peter Higgs that the Higgs particle would never be uh, discovered. Well, it was. He had uh, bets with uh, people that black holes would not release its information, and uh, he eventually claimed that he did some calculations which proved uh, him to be wrong on that. So, uh, yeah, a lot of his uh, speculative ideas were not uh, proven to be correct, but there were many that were as well, and most of them were done while he was young, and able to do the mathematics on his own. David Wesley Hoville, an associate professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Calgary, joining us on the phone this afternoon as we explore the legacy of Stephen Hawking, who died at the age of 76. Um, you know, for those of us, David, who aren't uh, with a scientific background and, let's say, never really did so well in, uh, in science <laughs> at school... So in I, other words, you and I. Yeah, the two yeah. of us. Yeah, and many others. I, I think, see them every day, too. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that 
made uh, science a little bit more appealing is seeing a, a man like Stephen on shows where you saw past, uh, you saw more than just the science, you saw funny, you saw um, a different kind of smart, whether he was on with John Oliver, whether it was the Star Trek episode, whether it was on Big Bang Theory. You know, I know that's completely different from his everyday work, but what do you think that did for science? I think that uh, what Stephen Hawking did was show that a scientist is human and uh, that they can enjoy life in, in spite of the difficulties that uh, life may present uh, to particularly him. And I think, you know, he was maybe disabled physically, but not disabled in spirit. I mean, when he was 70 years old or, you know, in his 70s, just a few years ago, he would go ballooning. Uh, in his 60s, he would train with astronauts um, in uh, anti, you know, in zero gravity uh, situations. I mean, so I think... What really he showed us is that to be a scientist, you need to be curious. You need to be curious about the uh, discipline that you have chosen to be your specialty, but you should also be curious about life. You should be curious about art. You should be curious about everything that is in your environment. Mm -hmm. and you may be a scientist, but if you maintain a curiosity all your life, you're you're a lifelong student, and I think Stephen Hawking enjoyed being a student, having people tell him new things that he didn't know, having him explore new things. And that's what science is all about. That's what life is all about, is to explore areas, to move into areas that may, you may feel uncomfortable in, but uh, uh, will teach you something um, in, later in your life. David, before we let you go, last question um, from me. Uh, you're obviously a very bright guy. While we have you uh, on the phone... will get you nowhere. Well, <laughs> can you explain goalie interference? <laughs> um, how long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know what, David? I saw, I saw one of your uh, colleagues today say um, that one of Hawking's legacies might just simply be the incredible power and determination to overcome his condition was the, the, the purest, the truest example of mind over matter. And I thought that was uh, a great comment. Well, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I've had people asking me also today what I think Stephen Hawking's greatest uh, accomplishment is, and I think it is overcoming all of the uh, adversity that uh, would hold most people back, but just ignoring that or just overcoming that and pushing onwards. I mean, as I said, he did physically uh, difficult things like training with astronauts. He did mentally difficult things, uh, solving difficult equations, coming up with new ideas, and I think all of those will be missed, particularly his ideas, because he, even though he may have been wrong, but he could be right, uh, I think he threw a lot of ideas out there for all of us to discuss and contemplate, uh, whether it's whether, you know, artificial intelligence is going to destroy us, or if we communicate with aliens, they will come and, and destroy us. Um, there's a lot of interesting topics that will still live on well after he's introduced them. And this has been an interesting uh, conversation. David Wesley Hobel, an associate professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of uh, Calgary. David, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Well, thanks for your interest. I have been enormously privileged through my work 
to be able to contribute to our understanding of the universe. But it would be an empty universe indeed, if it were not for the people I love, and who love me. We are all time travelers, journeying together into the future. But let us work together to make that future a place we want to visit. Be brave, be determined, overcome the odds. It can be done. So we've been talking about uh, the life, the legacy of Stephen Hawking, diagnosed at the age of 21 with ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, died uh, this morning at uh, the age of 76. And and that itself is, is just staggering for a lot of people to wrap their head around, let alone the work that he, he did every day. We're joined this afternoon by Edmonton ALS Clinic Director and Professor of Neurology at the Faculty of Medicine at the U of, Way, uh, U of A, Wendy Johnson. Hi, Wendy. Thanks for joining the show. Hi, Jalen. Uh, just, oh, Andrew, you go ahead. Yeah, I, I guess what uh, many people are learning yesterday and today that they didn't know previously uh, was that uh, Hawking was given two years to live and then obviously exceeded that by, what, 50 years. Uh, how unusual is that? And did Hawking do something that revolutionary to, to to be able to live that additional 50 years? So, um, his experience of being told he has two years to live is altogether too common because uh, certainly back when he was diagnosed 52 years ago, 54 years ago, um, the average life expectancy was about two years. But the key is average. Um, you know, Lake Wobegon, where all the women are strong and all the men are good-looking and all the women, all the kids are above average. Um, average means average. And so half the people with ALS passed away before two years and half of them passed away after. So people take that two years very literally, but it's just a statistic. Um, these days, people are still told, oh, well, it's three to five years uh-huh. that you will live. But it's still just a statistic. So do people live longer um, without any doing anything particular? Yes. So half the people live longer than that. And we generally say when I talk to people, is sure people with ALS will look at life-threatening complications potentially within five years. About 50% will look at that between three and five years. Um, but another, uh, the, the other half live longer, and a full 10% live longer than that. So we do know that there are outliers or people who do have a naturally longer survival. And statistically, young men are the most likely to have that longer survival. <laughs> there are certain subtypes that uh, have a more prolonged survival who are much more like multiple sclerosis in their expectations and really just learning to live with a chronic disability. So did Stephen Hawking do anything unusual? I'd say he did several things. One of which was he decided to live. (laughs) So he made a mental um, commitment that his life and work uh, needed to go on. And so that will to live is actually terrifically important. Secondly, he had a great interior life. And so a lot of what he did and what he valued had to do with his mind, his relationship with his family and his relationship with colleagues. 
And those are all the things that many people with ALS come to value, and that comes to influence their decisions around life-sustaining therapies and around how they wish to live their lives. So the other things that he did is he accepted anything that would prolong his life. And so he accepted artificial nutrition and artificial uh, ventilation. So he was on life support for many, many years. And people really weren't aware of that. They were aware that he couldn't speak because he had that um, the voice that we sort of come to think of as Stephen Hawking's mm-hmm. voice. But it was um, a, an American accent with uh, <laughs> a very robotic sound. Yeah. And that became his way of delivering lectures and responding to questions that he programmed and typed in. And he quite often pre-programmed it so that when uh, he was in interviews, he had the answers ready. Ah. Wendy, um, I was uh, reading a, a quote today from Steve Gleason. Um, you know, he was a football player with the New Orleans Saints. He mm-hmm. was famous for that block punt in that 2006 game, the first game back after uh, Katrina. He was diagnosed with ALS in, in 2011, still alive today. He said, quote, Stephen Hawking inspired me before ALS to keep asking questions, seeking answers and understanding the cosmic perspective. But since ALS, he saved my life with his example that people diagnosed with ALS can continue to live productive and purposeful lives for decades. And that's one of the things that I'm hearing today over and over again. And I think that is a really important message uh, on this day. I think it is too. And in fact, many people would ask at the time of diagnosis or shortly thereafter, you know, did Stephen Hawking have ALS? And I would have a discussion with them much as I did with you that yes, he really did, or he really does when they asked me. And we would talk about just those things that he found uh, were worth living for and how he did it and how each of these decisions is very personal to an individual circumstance. So Steve Gleason is articulating very much what Stephen Hawking meant to people with ALS in particular. The mind is an amazing it thing. Is, it, it is, isn't it? Wendy, it is. wish I could talk to you for more uh, for longer this afternoon. We're out of time. Thank you for taking time out of your day. Oh, you're welcome. Much appreciated. Bye-bye. The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad.